This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry, Episode 26, North Atlantic Supremacy. And so now we turn to the changing North Atlantic. As the era of steam reached its climax, a new international balance took form. People had a new sense of the world, a global perspective. By 1914, in geography, the world was almost entirely mapped. Few mysteries remained except for the ocean deep, which even today remains largely unknown. Exploration had become less a process of discovery than a feat of athleticism, a saga of endurance and survival in forbidding regions like the Arctic or Antarctica, where the environment was one of unyielding hardness, defined in the Arctic by rock and ice. Economics at the turn of the century showed a widening gap between the rich nations and the poor. Machinery and machine-made tools provided the prime generators of massive increases in wealth from productivity and gross output, stimulating an increasing demand for raw materials. World population doubles to 1.5 billion by 1890, with substantial demographic shifts. 40 million Europeans move overseas, carrying large political and social impact. 9 million Chinese also do so, largely to already densely settled areas in maritime Southeast Asia. The globe may have been falling into two parts, developing and lagging, but one system of transcontinental and transoceanic flows in which the Atlantic dominated, bound it together. Much of the 19th century world was a passive element in international affairs, which encouraged extreme Eurocentrism. Japan's emergence surprised the Atlantic world. Europe was beginning to share pride of place with the USA, and the western core of the North Atlantic world was rapidly developing, although in the late 19th century, Europe still had twice the industrial plant of the USA. But the USA was growing faster. By 1913, it equaled that of Britain plus Germany. For Britain, the rise of the U.S., was far less threatening than that of Germany. America posed no threat at sea. America seemingly had no territorial ambitions in Eurasia, and Britain's main interests with the USA were commercial and largely harmonious. Shifting economic patterns within the European North Atlantic core provide new strategic balances, opportunities for new leadership, a new competitive edge, and the rise of a multi-power system. The new competition is expressed in an armaments race, 
most spectacularly navalism as we have seen, and in competing alliance systems. These were fragile because of a lack of underlying principle, Russia and France being a prime example, an absolute monarchy linked to a republic. When Tsar Alexander III stood at attention while a band played the French revolutionary hymn, the Marseillaise, who knows what disgust he may have been smothering. Nationalism galvanized a neurotic climate of suspicion and insecurity out of which World War I erupted. A prosperous continent at the height of its success as a source and agent of global wealth and power and at one of the peaks of its intellectual and cultural achievement would be transformed by war, thrust into what the English poet Siegfried Sassoon called the gray land of death. World War I would drag its shadow through literature, music, and the visual arts. World War II would leave its own legacies of bitterness and horror. The Atlantic world, notably Europe, would reach the end of its long period of preeminence and power in global affairs. But war is only one part of the story. The ocean served as avenue as well as arena. Before the 19th century, the flow of people across the Atlantic was heavily African, the ocean functioning as medium for the slave trade. We are uncertain of the number, but the estimate is that 9 to 11 million Africans were forcibly brought to the New World to make a plantation economy possible. During the 19th and early 20th centuries, millions of immigrants fled Europe for the prospect of a better life in the New World. And in the period 1914 to 1945, the Atlantic, one of the great saltwater gulfs we call oceans, was a premier global saltwater avenue. Hugely rich, growing fast, and with a high standard of living, the USA enjoyed magnetic wealth plus a powerful emotional message. Freedom! Hence, millions flocked to these shores. Those from the European world came by sea, with New York City the primary port of entry. For these people... Seeking a new life, sailing into New York's Upper Bay would be the first sight of America, thrilling and commanding in its interplay of wealth and energy. From the harbor approach, people saw it sprawled out in all of its vertical splendor. Steam propulsion had brought to global routes bigger ships with deeper drafts, carrying larger amounts and varieties of cargo, making many smaller ports unusable. Sources, markets, and ships become specialized, such as refrigerator ships and oil tankers, 
The first in 1877 was Ludwig Nobel's Zoroaster sailing on the Caspian. Tramp ships roam the world looking for cargoes, generally the cheaper or bulkier items. Liners carry cargo and passengers on fixed schedules at fixed fees. The difference between the two being functional, not architectural. For shipping, the North Atlantic was essentially a hostile environment, often cold and stormy, with high seas, fog, and ice, fearsome in its moods, perilous to those who would venture upon it. It still carries important negatives. In 1912, the disaster of the unsinkable Titanic is a horror that carries lingering fascination. More recently, a contemporary calamity depicted in Sebastian Younger's The Perfect Storm and the movie that followed captured the imagination. But North Atlantic roots, despite the challenges, became of immense importance in peace and in war. This was the site of the world's greatest oceanic trade flows until the 1980s. It provided the true lifeline of the British Empire, its key supply line in two great wars, the British drawing nourishment from North and South America, especially the North. For Britain, unlike traversing the Mediterranean or taking the Cape of Good Hope pathway, no alternate route existed for that vital Atlantic flow. In peacetime, the Atlantic becomes the scene for the acme of passenger travel. The climax was reached in the mid-20th century just before World War II. Will we ever see it again? Yes, you might reply, cruise ships, possibly. Often, immense lubberly vacation vehicles devoted solely to entertainment. They offer even more amenities than had liners, but for a different purpose. It's all about the journey, the destination often being incidental. In the age of sail, passenger amenities were limited. Slave ships were a known abomination, but even later, Steerage class for immigrants provided limited space and required travelers to bring their own food and bedding. Observers described a sordid world of filth and stench. Bones, rags, and refuse of all manner, rank enough to turn the stomach of a camel, as one wrote. On immigrant ships... 10% of the passengers might die, usually of ship fever, typhus. Crew quarters in the forecastle were not much better, but perhaps less crowded. These conditions improved dramatically over the decades as steamships grew in size and in the comfort that space provides. Even for those traveling steerage, the economy class of that day. Steam developed new sea lanes, offering new dependability. Independent of winds, it made possible scheduled arrivals as well as departures. 
Britain sees the lead in oceanic traffic, but the trade becomes internationally competitive. Transport expresses national power and accomplishment. Ships become icons of national prestige, even more than national airlines later. Britain, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Scandinavia were the leading European competitors, speed being the leading criterion for prestige. In the mid-19th century, a symbolic blue ribbon was awarded for record-breaking speedy crossings. German ships rival the British, but the most famous would be Cunard's Mauritania, which would hold the record for many years, beginning in 1907. Germany's Bremen, in 1929, finally bested her. The ships compete for comfort as well as speed, and luxury liners represent a new purpose to amuse and entertain, not simply transport, to keep passengers from boredom and to promote a sense of camaraderie. Hence, time killers, gyms, pools, squash courts, and Turkish baths. Everyone walked or ran laps around deck. Exercise was touted as preventing seasickness, but for that, No remedy existed until the end of the era. Food was served frequently in large portions and extended varieties. Liners could supplement the basic foods with the best of the cuisine of each of their ports of call. English lamb, Dover sole, American beef, Chesapeake oysters, French cheeses, wines, and fruit, Dutch eggs, and bacon. This was a formal life, at least for first-class passengers. Gentlemen were expected to change their clothing four times a day. New York Mayor James Walker reportedly brought 144 suits with him. The day would end in smoking jackets, ladies in long gowns, ears weighed down with diamonds, in a kind of unreal, theatrical, even operatic splendor. This was a class society with strict segregation. Third class was startlingly different. But for those in the know, like college boys chasing girls in first class, sickbay, the hospital, and the chapel were routes for unauthorized upward mobility. Ship architecture emphasized indoors and coziness, encouraged by the raw North Atlantic with its frequently boisterous weather. In first class, it was a world of carved walnut and mahogany, with marble urinals and stainless steel bathtubs, thick carpets, crested china, and heavy silver tableware. One British naval architect, questioning the interior style of ships, said, Why not make a ship look like a ship? Company officials answered, 
The people who travel on these large ships are the people who live in hotels. These are not ships for sailors or yachtsmen or people who enjoy the sea. They are inhabited by all sorts of people, some of whom are very delicate and stay in their cabins. Others, less delicate, stay in the smoking room all through the voyage. If we could get ships to look inside like ships and get people to enjoy the sea, it would be a very good thing. But all we can do as things are is to give them gigantic floating hotels. After World War I, the passenger mix changed. Fewer ships carried few immigrants, but many more passengers. Companies change marketing. Steerage becomes tourist class and attracts people of moderate means. College students and professors able to spend a summer abroad, for example. By the mid-1930s, Britain and France dominate the shipping news with the Queen Mary in Normandy, both built in the depths of the Depression. One critic writes, The French built a beautiful hotel and put a ship around her. The British built a beautiful ship and put a hotel inside her. This is unfair. Normandy, with her radical hull and turbo-electric machinery, illustrated the French spirit of innovation. Normandy was the largest ship ever built at that time. Someone calculated that the power of her engines was the equivalent of seven million galley slaves pulling in unison. The ship had a dining room larger than the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles and just as spectacular in its gleaming, glassy splendor. Her arch-rival Mary made more than a thousand crossings. Normandy had a short and tragic life with only 70 crossings. In World War II, as Lafayette, she was converted to a troop ship and during that operation, a careless workman caused her to burn at her pier in New York, highly visible to cars passing on the West Side Highway. I, I remember viewing the sad sight of an enormous inert gray mass lying on her port side, refloating her for her final voyage to the scrapyard made her at the time the largest work of marine salvage ever attempted. Americans retaliated against these great European ships with the SS United States. She first sailed on July 3, 1952, and marks the end of an era. Like the clipper ship of the Age of Sail, she was the best of an obsolescent technology. Super fast, she passed the Queen Mary at sea. Her American captain sent a message. Need a tow? The reply from the Queen Mary was, Ladies do not keep fast company. The United States was the first American ship to win the Blue Ribbon since Edward Collins' Arctic a century before. She was all metal and synthetics, the first ship to be fireproofed and air-conditioned. 
The builders boasted that the only flammable objects aboard were a butcher's block and a Steinway piano. Steinway refused to make an aluminum one. The decor was one of simple functionality. The naval architect, William Francis Gibbs, said, Well, why not? The United States is a ship, not an ancient inn with oaken beams and plaster walls. Details of her construction and performance were kept secret because she was intended for military use if necessary. Although only two-thirds the size of Queen Mary, she could carry as many passengers as she and faster. Liners held special appeal as auxiliary warships, raiders perhaps, but their attraction of their speed and capacity would make them troop carriers instead. During World War II, the two queens, Mary and Elizabeth, traveled over one million miles and carried a million and a quarter troops, as many as 15,000 per voyage, a considerable feat of logistics. The ships moved at top speed and constantly zigzagged in order to elude U-boats, but they were at risk. One lucky hit could have taken the lives of 15,000 men, the greatest marine disaster in history, but it never happened. The liner carried an aura of romance never achieved by the airplane. The entertainment industry attached its glamour to the ocean liner. The media paid close attention to the great ships and the celebrities who traveled aboard them. In New York, journalists like the young Walter Cronkite might use a tugboat to gain a scoop, first access for an interview before a ship docked. New York City was the American focus of liner traffic. It held its leadership enjoying connections to hinterland, originally by water, later by rail and highway. The piers carried an immediacy midtown in the city itself, and what the towering mast of the sailing ship had done for New York's East River and the Lower East Side, the great funnel of the liner did for Manhattan's Hudson and the midtown Far West Side skyline. The impact was not only visual but oral as well, with dockside sounds like the grinding of chains, the squeal of winches, the slapping of cargo on deck. On the river, the high-pitched whistles of tugboats, the roar of the liners, were familiar sounds to New Yorkers. E.B. White writes, I heard the Queen Mary blow one midnight, and the sound carried the whole history of departure and longing and loss. Transoceanic passenger traffic, led by the Atlantic Stream, reached its peak in 1957 when one million people crossed the pond. 
Commercial jet air traffic began that year and would successfully compete. It was faster and cheaper for the passenger and for the airline. The cost per head was less than that for the shipping company. And so liners, in their original function, abruptly tumbled into decline and almost total disappearance. United States lies in the Delaware River, a stripped hulk waiting for its owners to decide what to do with her, but at last report she is likely headed for the scrapyard. Queen Mary One is now a floating hotel at Long Beach, its bar a great place to sit and have a drink, perhaps in the very spot where Winston Churchill or Marlena Dietrich once did. Elizabeth One went to her last home in Hong Kong, where she burned. Thus, two of the most famous ships in the North Atlantic ended in the Pacific, far from their old haunts, but symbolic of the new era of Pacific prominence in the maritime world. Accompanying this acme of global power for the North Atlantic world came new dimensions of warfare at sea during the first half of the 20th century. And so, this will be what we explore next in episode 27. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts, production and distribution by Albert Buichade-Ferret. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>